0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Gary Giddens, author of the definitive Bing Crosby biographies A Pocketful of Dreams and Swinging on a Star to discuss the biggest star and arguably greatest pop singer of the 1930s and 40s and his beginnings as a 1920s jazz hero. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll.
1: I'm your host Nate Wilcox and today I'm joined by Gary Goodens, author of Bing Crosby, A Pocketful of Dreams, The Early Years, 1903 to 1940, and Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940 to 1946.
3: Gary, welcome. Thank you, Nate. Good to be here.
1: And so this is a mammoth undertaking because Bing Crosby is a mammoth figure. This guy was an enormous star From 1934 to 1954 and he was a big and he was a star from 1927 to his death in 1977. What inspired you to tackle a project this massive?
3: Well I didn't anticipate it uh, taking uh, 25 years of my life uh, and and counting. Uh, What happened was I had done a short biography of Louis Armstrong called Satchmo. And uh, that was published uh, by Doubleday in, uh, I think, 1987 or 8. And uh, my editor, (coughs) excuse me, uh, at the time, uh, asked me if I would, uh, he thought that there was a, a market for a biography of Bing Crosby. And he asked me to do it many times over the next year or two, and I I just said, Paul, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm going to do, I had something else that I wanted to do, and uh, it, this went on for a while, and every once in a while, he'd call up and say, well, I think I've got somebody, so-and-so interested in doing Crosby, you know, thinking that would uh, make me competitive, and I would say, great, because I really, you know, I loved Bing's. Jazz recordings. I'd lived with them forever. Um, didn't really know the films very well. Didn't even know the F- Father O'Malley movies. Wasn't that interested in his later work. Um, so then, what happened was, I was I was going to do Ellington. And uh, my agent uh, got a letter that uh, the Ellington estate had uh, given all of its uh, papers to the Smithsonian to inventory and that they would be, uh, uh, boy, uh, embargoed for three years. Well, that took the wind out of my sails. And my agent said, look, uh, Paul wants you to do Crosby. I think I can get you a good advance. You do it in three years. It's just a 300-page book, and then we'll be ready to go. (laughs) <laughs> back to Ellington <laughs> so I, I agreed the money was good I, I, I but then I realized something you know there's one thing to do is short a brief life but if you're going to do a biography you can't rush it. You can't, there were no shortcuts. You either do it right or, or you don't do it. And uh, at first I had read, uh, there was a terrible book that came out called The Hollow Man, which was a real hatchet job. But I, you know, it didn't have anything about his music, but I thought that as a portrait of him, for all I knew it could be true. And then I read Gary Crosby's book and, you know, I didn't know any better than that, so the theme that I was developing was that this guy was you know behind closed doors, so something of a monster, but that to the public he was the soul of warmth and and all this time now i'm listening to everything I can find of his. I mean, I insist when I tackle a book to get every single record he ever made and 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 Every film that took a couple of years to do, and uh, the more I'm getting into it, uh, the more I'm admiring him. And then I started to do—I had put in calls to do interviews, uh, which is a whole other thing because I had never really gone into the Hollywood world. Anyway, I made my first trip out to Hollywood, and and I had done about 10 or 12 interviews, and there was a guy at the Disney studio who was doing a documentary on Crosby, and he had been very helpful, and and we had been talking. So I called him up one night, and I said, am I talking to the wrong people? Because the Crosby I'm getting from all these people is the greatest leading man I ever worked with, the nicest, the kindest, the most generous, the most helpful. You know, uh, I remember Ray Walston telling me a story that he said... There was no other actor who was more generous to other actors than Crosby. And, uh, you know, you have to go with your research. So once I started really digging in, I found out things about Crosby I had no idea about. I had always heard that he was a Republican, which he was, but I had no idea how good he was on, uh, how ahead of the curve he was on civil rights, which is the most important issue to me. Um, He was really great. I had no idea how close he was to Armstrong. I had no idea of his influence on technology. The fact that he was the first guy to take the microphone out of the radio and put it on. On a stand and use it as an instrument on stage. The fact that he was the first guy to finance uh, tape uh, and a tape-based studio, and uh, and of course, I had no idea of how. How extraordinary and really heroic he was during the second world War because he never talked about it it doesn't it gets half literally half a sentence in his memoir call me lucky he thought it was he thought it was uh you know a terrible thing to try to promote that or to or to you know these men gave up their lives and he He just, you know, unlike Bob Hope, who did it all his life, everybody knew about Hope entertaining the troops, but nobody knew about uh, the extent of uh, Crosby's work. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, this man is really, uh, he is a man of parts. And I became absolutely fascinated by his influence on, on popular singing, which I had underestimated as much as I loved the early recordings. I hadn't quite realized um, the gr- the degree of their importance and influence i mean the fact that armstrong was you know covering crosby at the same time that crosby was covering him and and it was really crosby who got armstrong to you know look more closely at the tin pan alley ballad repertory and and uh, when you when you matched up crosby early recordings you know in a discography with armstrongs my god it's like they were talking to each other through their record sessions when you get to got to cross uh, to armstrongs i'm confessing and he puts in these irish upper Mordens that are strictly Bing. you know you can't you you laugh out loud and so uh the years went by and uh, Finally, I said, look, uh, I have a book here, but it's just volume one, and they were freaked out, and in fact, the publisher demanded their advance back, wouldn't go with it, but another publisher, Little Brown, took it, and uh, my editor there, Sarah Crichton, loved what it had done, and and the book uh, got a lot of attention. Um, but the second book took me much longer um, than I anticipated, in part, because it took, many, many years for me to figure out how to deal with the war. And it wasn't until about four or five years ago that I discovered Crosby's uh, journal of that period. And that made the whole book come to life for me.
1: And it's, it's incredible stuff. And I was, you know, vaguely aware of I mean, I was aware of Bing Crosby and I was vaguely aware that he had been an important pioneer in popular popularizing jazz And of course, I knew the road movies, and I knew the the Bing and Bob, Bob Hope show from TV in my earliest years. But these books really hammer home what an enormous influence he was on American music. And the bit with the microphone is absolutely essential, and the magnetic tape is essential. And in some ways, it seems to me like he... You you bring it home. I mean, being born in 1903, Bing Crosby was the first generation that was raised on recorded music. And there's That's a point right. in there where you describe how his generation reacted to music, and it made me feel like there's a commonality between that first generation of the 20th century that suddenly got recorded music in their hands and, and access theoretically, you know, to, for the first time they can access music from, from a distance and through time. And now we've got a new generation that's coming along with access to seemingly everything ever recorded. And there are certain commonalities. How did that
3: explosion? But There's an essential them? difference there. Now we have everything, and everything can be really confusing and too much. Then they had very little. So every record was precious, and every record was a mystery until you put it on and played it. I mean, Crosby would go to, you know, in those days, record stores had listening booths. And uh, because the records were expensive, and you might listen to four or five records before you said, "Ah, oh, this is the one I'm going to take." And uh, Crosby listened to everything. He listened to Irish balladeers. He listened to Al Jolson. He listened to whatever jazz bands he could find. And believe me, they weren't the good ones because they were the the white North Western bands. They weren't, you know. Well, you couldn't get hold out there necessarily of King Oliver. Well, this is way before King Oliver even recorded. So uh, mostly he was hearing dance bands that were calling themselves jazz, like Art Hickman or Paul Whiteman, but would, would have had very little jazz spice to them. So the, the, I think the difference is more important than the commonality, because Crosby and Armstrong both had no prejudices about what was hip and what wasn't, and what was cool and what was not. You know, I I remember uh, when I was growing up, and certainly watching my daughter when she was growing up, that, uh, you know, people would rate you, whether you could be in their crowd or not, by what you listened to. And they didn't feel that way. They, They thought the fun of it was just to hear everything.
1: And he not only heard Jolson on record, but he actually got to see Jolson live at the peak of Jolson's powers.
3: Well, Jolson came to Spokane, as you say, at the peak of his powers, and uh, Bing, I think, was 13 at the time, and he got a job, uh, you know, manipulating the ropes for the curtain backstage, and uh, I don't think he actually met Jolson, or at least I don't think he got to talk to him, I think he would have been a little afraid of that, but he saw him every single performance he gave and it was jaw-dropping for him. I mean, he just had never experienced anything like it. Now remember, this is a guy from the wrong side of the tracks in an Irish Catholic community and this Jewish performer comes from Broadway with a whole different approach and he loved that as much as he loved John McCormick's Irish ballads and when he started, you know, and when he heard Armstrong, that was like unbelievable to him. So he was open to everything and and he assimilated it but what i find most remarkable about crosby and, and this is detailed to some degree in, in the pocketful of dreams book when i when i talk about the early recordings i'll say well in these measures you can you can hear jolson there you can hear armstrong here but it's only for a couple of measures because being his, from the very first time he records muddy water in 1926 he's he's an original you always know it's Crosby, his, his approach, his, his way he deals with rhythm, his, his, you know, everything about him. He has that security, but at the same time, he's open to everything that's going on. And so he's the ultimate mainstreamer and popularizer because people just trust his taste. And uh and he he can you know, Roy Rogers said to me, the cowboy actor, that it was Bing who who made everybody realize that you could be a a Western singer and have a great, beautiful voice. He, he said before Crosby, all the cowboy singers thought they had to sound like Gabby Hayes with gravel in their throats.
1: And let's hear a little bit of Muddy Water. This is Bing Crosby with the Rhythm Boys, his partners, uh, who sang as part as a subset of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. This is Paul Whiteman and the Rhythm water, Boys, rhythm Muddy Water.
4: Just God's own shelter,
1: down on
4: the Delta.
0: Muddy water in my
4: shoes, Rockin' to those low down blues. They live in ease and comfort down there, I declare. Dixie way, round
1: that delta let me lay. And that was Bing Crosby's recording debut on Muddy Water. Tell us a little bit about the. There was one. Voice.
3: Well, there was one earlier recording for a tiny uh, label in California, but it's it's perfectly awful.
1: <laughs> and and yeah, I'm a no, very we're little even... known at the time. But tell us a little bit about the Rhythm Boys and how uh, Bing Crosby and Al Rinker got together in Spokane, moved the way down the coast, and were discovered by Paul Whiteman.
3: Well, Al was quite a bit younger than uh, than Crosby. You know, when you get into your 40s and 50s, three or four years don't mean a goddamn thing. But uh, when you're in high school and college, then you know, if you are in college, the high school kids are kids so uh rinker had a a little band at his high school and he lost his drummer and somebody said that there's a guy you know here at gonzaga who's really good so uh bing was in his senior year he was studying law at gonzaga and uh they rinker invited him to his house and the band uh excuse me they uh Tried a couple of numbers, and and they thought Bing was terrific on the drums. And Bing then turned to his kit and brought out a little tiny megaphone and said, "I like, I sing too." So uh, once they heard him, they were like bowled over. And and he soon realized he was making more money with the band than he was uh, uh, clerking at a law office. So he quit. He quit in his last year, just months before he would have graduated, and uh, and then the band broke up because all those they were high school kids and they were going off to college, so there was no more band. But Rinker didn't want to do anything but music, so uh, Rinker was still seventeen. Bing was in his like twenty two or three, and uh, so they had to have his parents uh, sign for him eventually when, when they went with Whiteman. But the first thing that happened was they, they chipped in and bought a, a ragged model T, And Al's sister was the great, the great Mildred Bailey, one of the most important you know, singers of all time. At that time, completely unknown. They were uh, part uh, Choctaw Indian and uh, part Irish that all but they lived on the reservation and and Mildred had gone down to uh, to uh, California and was working in speakeasies and frankly one of them was really a whorehouse uh, in the Hollywood Hills uh, uh, where all the big movie stars would go to, you know where they could drink and and partake of the women or whatever. Mildred was strictly there for entertainment. And uh, she would sing, and she, she, she built up an audience there. And so Crosby and Rinka, without telling her, just decided, well, let's drive to, to L.A., and we'll see my sister Millie, and maybe she could help us get a gig. So they do that. Um, it's a sort of long story drive with the car breaking down every 50 yards. But they finally arrive. Uh, they ditch the Model T and they ring her doorbell. And she's wonderful. She invites them in. She listens to their act. She says, you guys are great. But she tells Bing to park his drums in the basement. And, and that's where they remained forever. <laughs> and uh, and she, she, she recommended some auditions. And they must have been pretty damn good because every place they Auditioned, they got a you know a job, and so they started working on the uh, the California um, vaudeville uh, uh, route. Uh, they never got out of California, but uh, Paul Whiteman, who was the biggest thing in show business at that time, uh, had the most successful band, uh, million-selling records routinely, uh, uh, already a, a legendary force. Uh, he had been called the king of jazz primarily uh, because he had a, a very popular dance band and because he premiered the Rhapsody blue, and and that was considered jazz by a lot of people back in 1924. But after 1924, he had heard Armstrong would come to New York later that year to play with Fletcher Henderson, who was a friend of Whiteman's. Everything was completely segregated. All the greatest black musicians were with Henderson, and the greatest white musicians were with Whiteman. And and Whiteman said, this is ridiculous, and he wanted to hire some black musicians. And, and uh, you know, the, his management said, you can't do that. Not only will we not be able to work the South, but these guys won't be able to walk in the front doors of the hotels we play. They'll have to walk through the back. They won't be able to eat in the same restaurants. That's how bad the scene was. And Whiteman said, okay, if I can't have black musicians on the stage, nobody can stop me from hiring them as arrangers. Um, And he did. He he helped to make the early career of the great composer William Grant Still. He had Fats Waller arrangements. He had, he, he had advice from people like Fletcher Henderson and Ubi Blake. And eventually, he decided he was going to hire real jazz musicians, the best white musicians there were. And the fir- the first ones that he hired, as ironically, were the singers, uh, Crosby and Rinker. Um, which he he sort of was going to use as a, a, a you know an act to spell the musicians they'd come out Al would sit at the piano Bing they would do a duet but he was also going to have Bing sing because he could really swing and he had this fantastic baritone whereas in those days most of the male singers were tenors because the tenors sounded better on acoustical recording but 1926 Everything starts to switch to electrical recording, much more nuanced. So uh, it, it, he tells them to meet him in Chicago on a certain date. They finish their contractual obligations in California, and then they take the train to Chicago, and everything's going great. And they have several stops as the band travels to New York. Everything's good. and Then they get to New York, and the audience can't stand them. I mean, they, first of all, they couldn't hear them because nothing was mic'd. And, uh, they just didn't understand what he was, what Crosby was doing. And so, uh, Whiteman had no choice. He was going he was thinking about firing them, but he, he kept, he, he had a nightclub, gig, and he'd use them in that. And then, uh, a series of circumstances Bing and Al were introduced to Harry Barris who was a very hot performer in New York at the time he also he played piano he was a better pianist than Rinker and he had a kind of very jazzy you know quality about him he wasn't really a jazz singer or a jazz pianist but he would it, it, people who are listening to this who know the movie Showboat the 1936 movie there's a fabulous scene in it where where Harry Barris uh, accompanies uh, Helen Morgan and uh, you really get a sense of what he was like. Well, anyway, Barris was a very talented songwriter. He wrote Mississippi mud. He wrote Rap Your troubles and dreams. I surrender dear, which were among Crosby's two biggest hits. And, uh, they get together and they make an arrangement of Mississippi mud. And, They're very excited. Whiteman can't believe his ears because this is really something new. And the three of them together have so much pizzazz and he puts them on the stage and they kill. And then the Rhythm Boys became like the hottest thing going in New York in the the Prohibition era. They became uh, very much in demand and they started appearing routinely on Whiteman's recordings. Although his best arranger, Bill Chalice, uh, preferred to have Crosby solo whenever he could. Now, in those days, the singer would sing one chorus. You know, the, it was mostly instrumental, um, but Crosby would nail these choruses, and and suddenly he started getting written about in England because uh, there were critics over there who said, "Who would have thought that the best jazz singer uh, that would finally arrive on records would be a white guy?" Uh, and with Paul Whiteman. And so uh, everything began to change, and of course, eventually, they left Whiteman and and went on their own.
1: And uh, while he was with Whiteman, he meets a pair of Italian jazz musicians, Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, who are incredibly important. Eddie Lang, widely considered to be the first jazz guitarist before Django Reinhardt, before Charlie Christian, before west montgomery and joe yes, Benuti, but... it's a total inspiration for what django reinhardt and stephanie grippelli do later
3: well yes there was one other great guitarist uh who is a contemporary of eddie lang and they loved each other
1: and the black
3: guitarist named lonnie johnson
1: yeah and they duetted together
3: And they made duets together, but they couldn't record under their own names because that would be integrating, and everybody knew who Lang was. So he recorded under the pseudonym Blind Man (laughs) Dunn. But they loved working together. And Lang had been on Ellington uh, records. He had been a very important part on a couple of Armstrong records. Um, and uh, eventually, he became a, a big rhythm and blues star in the 40s, and was still performing as a blues uh, singer well into the 60s. But um, Lang was the more virtuoso guitar player. The more, in, in a sense, that he was much more. Uh, Jazz dedicated. And uh, Lang became Bing's uh, confederate and his intimate. uh, He's the one, he probably got. Closer to Bing than anyone ever did. Any any male friend, anyway. And they traveled together, and 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 his, uh, Lang's wife and Bing's wife uh, became the closest. Of, they were they remained friends for life. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Joe Venuti was the great jazz violinist of that era. He influenced everybody that came after. Him. I got to know Joe uh, back in the seventies. Uh, I. I wrote minor notes for him and actually appeared on television once interviewing him. But um, the, these were extraordinary musicians, and they were stars in their own right with Whiteman. And and as a duet, they made many, many records for Columbia. And uh, Venuti remained a friend with Crosby for decades. But, but uh, after Bing made his first movie, which has a scene with Eddie Lang, you only see him from the back accompanying Bing. Uh, Bing said the next film you have to have a, a speaking part and uh, he had some problems with his uh, voice at the time, and he was recommended to get a tonsillectomy. And, and Bing said, "You know, it's a nothing thing. Get it, and then meet me in Hollywood, and we'll start doing this film." And they butchered him on the table. Um, he started to hemorrhage. He bled to death. And it was really not until uh, after my first volume came out that uh, a, a doctor who was also a jazz fan really did some investigation and 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 concluded, as Lang's widow had, that they had basically he had hemorrhaged and they, and they ignored him. They just left him there to bleed out. And uh, so we lost one of the real geniuses of that period when he was in his
1: 20s. And Bing Crosby lost his best friend. And let's hear their chemistry. This is After You've Gone with Bing Crosby with Eddie Lang on guitar.
4: After you've gone, let me cry. After you've gone, there's no denial. You'll feel blue, you'll feel sad. You'll miss the dearest pile you ever had. There'll come a time, now don't forget it, there'll come a time when you'll regret it. Someday when you grow lonely, your heart will break like mine
1: and you'll want me only. After you've gone, after you've gone away. And that was After You've Gone with Bing Crosby, accompanied by Eddie Lang, his best friend, uh, and as close to a soulmate as he ever had. Uh and and Lang dies at age thirty, tragically, just as Bing has I guess they had about a year and a half together at the beginning of Bing's solo career. But mm-hmm. but now Bing is on his own and his relationship with another man Takes precedence, and this is Jack Cap, who uh, becomes the head of the founder of American Decca Records. But he wasn't with Decca when he first started working with Bing. Tell us a little bit about Jack Cap and how he guided Bing through the '30s and, and beyond. Well,
3: Cap came from Chicago, and he was uh, sort of. Famous in the rec- in the early burgeoning record industry, as a guy, he owned a record store, and he, when he started uh, recording, uh, he mostly became involved with Brunswick, and uh, he had a memory and uh, file cards on every distributor he ever spoke to, every everyone he ever, every store he ever sold a record to, and everybody knew him, and he knew how to promote the material. And uh uh the Brunswick records with Crosby were very successful. He recorded everybody, he recorded Duke Ellington, he re- he had an incredible catalog. And then uh, you know, with the Depression, uh the record industry died. It just folded up. The only uh uh company that really survived was R C A and that was only because uh R C A owned it was NBC. They had a radio station. Um CBS did not have a record label at that time. Columbia Records, which was well established, went bankrupt and was was put into a holding company. Almost all of the labels were putting into holding companies and frankly none of them thought that the record industry would ever bounce back because their hated rival radio was offering music for free. So why was why were people gonna buy these discs? And then something amazing happened. Um uh, there several things actually first of all the big band era started and that created a music boom that we hadn't seen in this country since before the depression since the you know days of Whiteman in the 20's and uh, uh, everybody wanted uh, to have the latest uh, Benny Goodman and Count Basie and Glenn Miller what have you recording Ellington started making some of the, the greatest recordings of his career in 1939 to 1943 and then at the same time that the big band era comes along Crosby really hits his peak because he becomes an enormous film star, and in 1935, he takes over the Kraft Music Hall and becomes the most popular variety performer on the air. So uh, people want to buy the Crosby record. So Jack Cap makes a deal with uh, Sir Edward Lewis, uh, who owned uh, the Decker Company in London, and uh, they really all he had with Bing was a handshake, and Bing was now being offered... Big money from every label that was. Uh, CBS finally bought Columbia Records so that they could be or have a rival to uh, RCA. And uh, um, uh, with that ha- handshake that he had with Crosby, uh, he was able to get the financing, and they started deck in 1934. Um, at the war, you know. Cap believed that the worst, the best time to start a new company, is what everybody thinks is the worst time. You know, when when the the depression is at its peak, and because he he knows it's going to turn around, and the, the, all your costs are going to obviously be less when nobody has any money. And not only that, but then he decided that records were too expensive, and he was going to make his records uh, less than half price. Uh, for years, there was a thing about Decca. Deca was the one company that was priced in many stores as three for a dollar. So a lot of families would, you know, they'd walk into a store and say or send a kid over and say bring back three deca- three Deccas. but did go in and say what are the latest Decca recordings and you just choose three they were buying the label this was the first time this ever happened instead of the artist because of the well because they were great artists on DECA but because also the the price change was dramatic so uh, with all this going on uh, DECA uh, of course breaks through and immediately becomes the third uh, major player in the industry along with the Colombian RCA,
1: and Cap also changes Crosby's music. He pulls him away from the jazzier stuff. And, yes, and to...
3: Cap's, Cap's wife Frida said to his widow. Frida said to me, uh, Jack said, "I'm going to take away his bubba baboo," and she said he did. Um, he convinced Bing that if he kept singing the way. You know, the jazz style and this very mannered way he had with ballads, which was so popular then, that only the hipsters would care. And in a few years taste would change and the jazz people would be very happy. He said, But but you can do everything. you can can still do the jazz records once in a while, but we also do mainstream, we can do patriotic songs, we can do 19th century songs, we can do Irish ballads, we can do cowboy songs, we can do Hawaiian songs. He said, you can be the great minstrel of the 20th century, you have that kind of voice and versatility. And Crosby was very uh, cynical about it. I mean, in fact, at his very first session, uh, Cap gave him these two unbelievably corny records by Carrie Jacobs Bond. Written in the early part of the century, hardly anybody could have gotten away with. I mean, you can't even imagine Sinatra attempting to sing them. And they were hits. Crosby knew how to make them work. He knew how to make nostalgic records and, and you know, Americana seem relevant again. He, he knew how to sing Stephen Foster, um, and uh, as a result, Bing became. The everyman singer, and and in the course of that, his style got moderated. For one thing, the the nodes that he had, that gave his voice a sort of impression. Uh, very pleasant kind of uh, slight hoarseness they went away by themselves a lot of people thought he had an operation but he never did and uh, so his voice became a lot cleaner he was recording a lot more so occasionally he made a lot more terrible records um, but he also made a lot of his greatest records and and uh, he never lost his time his sense of time was really incredible when I started on the book I remember, the great uh, jazz saxophonist Jimmy Heath saying to me, Oh, Bing Crosby, I don't want to read that. And I said, Were well, you a Crosby fan? And he said, Well, he, he, he's, a, he's an African American musician. And he says, Well, Crosby was the only guy in the air, meaning the only white guy, because that's all that was on the air, who had time. So that's where we got the songs from. And uh, he, he never lost that ability. I, can I tell you a fair story about his sure. time? Sure yeah uh when, the, when in the later years in the 70s um, American record companies wouldn't record him he was very passe rock you know the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the stones and all of that everything had changed and uh so Bing made a couple of records that he paid for himself and then leased uh, to small uh, uh, labels that were distributed. But in England, it, it were, which remembered him from the war and which was much more loyal, he still remained very big, and he went over there routinely to record. And he made some very fine records um for the major labels in, in, in Britain. Um, at one of them, uh, the big band that was hired to accompany him consisted, you know, largely of young studio musicians who loved jazz, who spent all the time listening to Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis and so forth. And they had grown up hearing about Crosby and hearing their parents play him. And uh, the the conductor of the orchestra, who was, I guess, about 28, 29 at the time, was a tenor saxophone named Alan Cohn, not... Not to be confused with the great American jazz saxophonist, Al Cohn. Anyway, Alan Cohn, uh, he said during the break, the guys were all talking. This thing is really something. They liked him personally, and he's really good. And he, They were stunned by how, how easily he could swing. So they decided to play a trick on him. Uh, the next take, the rhythm section was going to syncopate step. <laughs> You know, head off, the drummer was going to drop bombs, the bass player was going to do all kinds of stuff to see if they could knock him off his perch. And they couldn't, and when they were done, they did another take because the ensemble didn't sound great. But after that, uh, they walked over to Bing and said, Mr. Crosby, we have to tell you, we were really trying to, uh, you know, drive you crazy on that uh, to see if we could unseat you from the perfect time. And Bing said, I'll tell you why you couldn't. He said, all I listen for is the one. If I can hear the one, I don't care how much shit you put on top of it, it's not going to bug me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's awesome and yeah he's described as having bassy time by uh, some a Jake
3: Hanna the great jazz drummer said he was telling me he said Crosby had the best time of anybody he had, he had time like Zoot Sims he had times like you know he was mentioning all these great players and then he sputtered and he said let me just put it this way he had bassy time because bassy is like you know he's like the metronome a living metronome. nobody has greater time than Count Basie
1: And so, yeah, so Bing had this incredible technical ability and a sense of effortlessness. Uh, He made everything look easy. One or two passes through a song and he had it down and then he could swing it. He He could, like you said, he did a wide range of songs. But this... He goes through this transition from the Prohibition era being who's this jazz beau, who's a heavy drinker, who's a, a feature performer in somebody else's group. And and is a star, but not a huge star. Rudy Valley, for example, is kind of outshining him there for a couple of years. But then in the 30s, he ascends to this next level. And I want to emphasize, you know, the craft Radio show that you mentioned. This is a show that got up to 50 million viewers a week. Uh, listeners, not viewers. Richard, but I mean, yeah. but But like that's you know, close to getting the Beatles on Ed Sullivan audience every week for over a decade. And he, well, text- he didn't have
3: those numbers for a decade, but he had... He, he was top-rated for 10 years. Always in the top 10 for 10 years. That was amazing. And uh, during the war, yes, it went up to 50 million. But... Uh, and remember, we only had 150 people, 150 million people living in the country. You know, at least got close to four hundred million. So one hundred and fifty million—if you've got 50, you have a, a one third of every of the American public thats astounding.
1: Yes, and and he uh, takes on a, a mantle that you compare to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who also spoke to the to the American public on the radio weekly, and and you know through Jack Cap's guidance, he's able to sort of become this everyman figure and. That's you know, right. T- Look, Go ahead.
3: The line about Crosby was uh, everybody thinks that they sound like him in the shower.
1: <laughs> and but let's nobody
3: hear, you know
1: nobody could. And let's hear I remember one remember after, after being died
3: uh, there were there were You know, big tributes on all the networks because he had helped all the networks at one point to survive. But the the most incredible one was on ABC. It was two hours long. William Holden narrated it. I wish you could get it on a DVD or something because it was truly brilliantly done. And it, they interviewed everybody who was alive who had worked with him, and one of the people was Rosemary Clooney, who uh, became a great friend to me and helped me to get this book done. Uh, and they said to Rosemary, "Well, was he really a great singer?" And she looked at the interviewer as though oh, he were insane. Yes, he was a very great singer. He had unbelievable pitch. He had the best low notes in the business and the best high notes when he was in really good voice. Uh, he had incredible time. And you know who his biggest, someone's biggest fans were through his whole career, opera singers, uh, like Lisa Stevens, who worked with him in Going My Way. Um, he had a he had a huge following in the opera world because he made it seem so easy.
1: And he also had a huge admirer in Louis Armstrong. And you've got a quote from yes. Louis where he says Bing was the boss of all singers.
3: Right. Well, you know, and and when when uh, Bing was asked in the early 50s, uh, who who did you learn the most from? Bing's answer was, I'm proud to be a lifelong member of uh, the congregation of Reverend Spatchel now, uh, uh, which was a nickname that Pop had back in the early days.
1: Yeah, and, and so they had this mutual admiration society going on. And it's time to hear one more song, and this is uh, from the later 30s, but it's still fairly jazzy and definitely something I would throw in as a, as a, a song from the Great American Songbook, the lyrics by Johnny Mercer. This is You Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby.
4: You must have been a beautiful baby You must have been a wonderful child When you were only starting to go to kindergarten, I bet you drove the little boys wild And when it came to winning blue ribbons you must have shown the other kids how. I can see the judge's eyes as they handed
1: you the prize. I bet you made the cutest bow. Oh, you must have been what a You must have been a beautiful baby, baby with lyrics by uh, Johnny Mercer, who was somebody that being, had kind of a, Protege of Bing Crosby, somebody who came to Hollywood and being being helped him out, and you just see from that song that even though he's been doing you know Sweet Leilani and the Hawaiian songs, and he's been doing Home on the Range and and Beautiful Dreamer with the Stephen Foster material, he can still swing a contemporary hit. Uh, yeah, just absolutely brilliantly.
3: He was Ellington's favorite singer. Ellington said, "I'm not. I'm. Not, you know, never going to hire a male vocalist until I can find someone who, who sounds like Crosby." And uh, that he didn't. Herb Jeffries, who I interviewed at length, uh, joined the band, and uh, he was desperately trying not to sound like Bing and they said, no, 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 that's what Duke wants. So, uh, you know, he recorded Flamingo uh, and, uh, in a much deeper voice. I mean, he had his own style. You weren't going to confuse the two, but it was the Crosby style that influenced him and that became one of Ellington's uh, biggest selling records and made it possible for him to, to record things like the Sweets and the uh, concert pieces that uh, would not have, uh, make that kind of, uh, have those kind of sales. And, and w- another thing about the jazz singing, for anyone who thinks he lost it, a record that I, I unhesitatingly remember to, uh, recommend to everyone who's listening is the 1958 uh, Bing with a Beat, uh, which he recorded with the Bob Scobie Band. And I think it's one of, it, uh, it's maybe Crosby's best uh, LP, and it uh, has some of his very best work.
1: And you compare, you say Bing is one of the four founders of modern American singing. And, and yeah. you say that the other founders are Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, and Louis Armstrong. Talk a little bit about that foursome and Bing's place in it and what the other three contributed.
3: Well, Waters is the one who is least remembered. Ironically, she and Bing died around the same time. In fact, uh, within the space of uh, a couple of months, in, in the fall of, uh, late summer and fall of 1977, four of the most influential vocalists of the 20th century all died uh, Bing, Ethel Waters, Maria Collins, uh, poor Americans, I should say, Maria Collins, everyone thinks she was uh, Italian, but she was born in America, and Elvis Presley. And uh, uh, Ethel became so big as a, an actor, uh, as a Broadway star, in, in, in film that um, people forgot how important a vocalist she was. She really never recorded after 1939, um, but she had a, a, also a great time, perfect articulation. She was very good with lyrics. She could sing the the most down-home, dirtiest, risque blues. She probably recorded more and entendre blues records, and some of them are not double, they're single entendre uh, records than anybody but she could sing anything and she was the first she, her voice was so clear that uh, most uh, record artists didn't even think of her as being African American, so she could get away with doing, you know, impersonations of Mae West and other white performers which would have otherwise been considered uh, you know, something you didn't do Sophie Tucker, one of the biggest vaudeville stars uh, of all time. Uh, was so knocked out by Ethel Waters, who was half her age, that she offered to pay her her vocal lessons, and they became good friends. So Ethel uh, was a huge influence. She who was Armstrong? Armstrong heard her when she toured New Orleans when he was still a kid, and or a teenager, playing in the cabarets there. And of course, Crosby was was enthralled by her. Uh, he used to go up to Harlem to hear her whenever she was performing in New York. Uh, and then I think Bessie Smith is, is better known because she's truly a blues. She is the, the empress of the blues. And and then Armstrong and Crosby and between the, the four of them, they really define the style of American music as being something very different from the operetta and the various types of folk styles that had dominated, say, in the 1890s and in the first 20 years of the 20th century. And
1: there's another... Sort of foursome that you compare him to because of the magnitude of his stardom and the vehicles of his stardom. Because he was first a recording star selling records, then a radio star doing live performances on the radio, and then a movie star. And all through the 30s, you know, he starts with shorts with Max Sennett, and then he's doing not quite top of the line pictures, but hit pictures that are some. Somewhere between the B pictures and A pictures. And then by the 40s, he becomes an Oscar-winning absolute superstar. And mm-hmm. you say that the only uh, stars that successfully followed that path were Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, and Barbara Streisand.
3: I would add probably Doris Day too. But, but uh, well, you know, nobody had... Nobody equaled Cros- Crosby... To any sense, uh, in all four, I mean, Sinatra never made the top ten uh, box office attractions. Crosby broke the record. he was five years consecutively. Uh, Certainly Streisand never did. They made it a few years, but not five. Um, And then nobody, including Sinatra, had as many hit records as Crosby over so long a time. Um, uh, you know he, he created He created this template For that kind of a career For a singer To go from records and radio Into the movies But uh, And they followed him And of course Had enormous success But You know the Nobody really ever handled it Quite the way he did And Elvis Well he died young But, but You know When he went into movies Look at the compromises He had to make musically it's not like he would, uh, you know, make five records for the Colonel and then turn around and make a rock and a killing rock and roll record. Um, you have to really hunt for the great tracks at this point. So, uh, you know, Crosby was always in charge. He took he took the recommendations of people he thought knew better than he did, like Jack Cap. Uh, when he saw that the, the success he was having, he figured, hell, Jack knows more about this than I do. If he thinks as song is good for me, I'll do it. But if he really believed in something, he would fight with Cap, as I detail at some length. Uh, one of the, A couple of their arguments, which were, happened to be tape-recorded because the tapes were rolling, um, it was Crosby who said, I want to start singing Irish songs, and Cap was opposed. And uh, in fact, the first uh, couple that he did, Cap didn't release for several weeks, and then finally he put it out. And sure enough, this time Crosby understood the commercial power of these records. So, and and also, it's an interesting thing about the ethnicity, because before the war, Bing was not known as an Irish performer; he was known as an. Uh, you know an anglo American performer the characters he played were always very Anglo his father was from his his father's uh, uh, ancestors came from England not from Ireland only his mother's came from Ireland but when he saw what was going on with the the hatred of Jews, the hatred of blacks, the hatred of people just for who they were. He decided he wanted to join the ethnic, the minorities. And so he switched his persona entirely. And he did it. Suddenly, the names of his characters instead of being uh, you know, John Jones type names, uh, you get uh, Irish names. <laughs> and, you, and he starts playing Irish characters, as he does in the in the two uh, Leo McCarran films, Go, Going My Way and Bells of St. Mary. And he starts recording all kinds of Irish songs. And from that point on, he became thought of as an Irish-American
1: singer. I'm glad you brought that up, because that shows that points to Crosby's moral leadership during one of the darkest periods of history and again you know the knock on him my entire life has you know revolved around this hollow man and abusive and 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 a fraud but reading these books, that's definitely not the uh, impression you take away. I mean, I come away from this with this incredible admiration of Bing Crosby, and I want to play the last song and, and show a different side of Bing Crosby. This is his re-recording of uh, Harry Barris's Wrap Your Troubles and Dreams, and this is an, uh, a very famous outtake that was bootlegged immediately and we'll hear Bing ad-libbing a little bit off-color. This is Wrap Your, your Troubles and Tumble, Dreams.
4: That's made after all Life's really funny that way Sang the wrong melody, we'll play it back See what it sounds like, hey, hey (laughs) he cut out eight bars, the dirty bastard And I didn't know which eight bars he was gonna cut why don't somebody tell me these things around here?
1: Holy Christ, I'm going off my nuts. And that was being Crosby's uh, ad-libbing his way through Rapid Troubles and Dreams. I just wanted to play that for the audience because it's just so funny. And his you can really hear how brilliantly he can ad-lib and, and go with the flow. And just what a funny, likable guy he was.
3: He, he, was, he was very verbal. And, um, you know, think about it. Uh, most of the, the really great performers, whether it's Louis Armstrong or Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra, most of them had no education. They dropped out of high school. They uh, is unique in that he had, uh, you know, two years of war. He was extremely well-read. He understood. And, and that's a, just a great example. They had this strange rule. That when he was doing a take, and I think this came from the movies, because when you're making a film, as an actor, even if you screw up, it's not your call to stop the scene. It's for the director to do. And sometimes the director will let him play to see where it goes. Um, And uh, when he recorded uh, and he made a mistake and he oh damn it, uh, you still have to do it unless he stopped singing until the end. Uh, and uh, there were actually quite a few of these these funny alternate takes where uh, I mean, he did one with the Andrew sisters, and the Andrew, he started laughing, and the Andrew sisters started to laugh, and then all of a sudden they realized, we're not stopping, we're going to continue to make this record. And it's wonderful to listen to now, because they really caught off. But, you know, Bing, he, he just... He, he got inspired by these strange things, and he was great on it. I mean, nobody could ad-lib better than him. Um, you can see that in the way he deals with the hope, uh, some of the repartee in the, in the road movies. Some of those so-called ad-libs were actually written during rehearsals, but they were ad in the rehearsals. And uh, they said, wow, that's a great line, keep it. And uh, some of the lines were, were genuine ad-libs. And the, other th- the other thing I have to say is that Crosby was incredible at ad-libbing is Frank Capra once said uh, Crosby is he would put Crosby in the top ten of all movie actors because of the way he could improvise with props. And with that in mind, when you watch... Crosby films. You you watch what he does with props. He's astonishing. If there's a ball in the room, he'll start clipping it. He'll he'll have both hands going. If he has drumsticks in his hand, he'll play. You know, or just the tapping. Um, he always he's always busy. He's
4: always.
1: And I I feel like we've only scratched the surface in this delightful hour. And hopefully, we can have you back on and talk more about the second book, *Swinging on a Star*. Uh, in greater detail at some point. Gary Giddens, it's been a real treat to have you on the
0: show.
3: I enjoyed it, Nate. Thank you.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at com. Nate will be back next week with Dave Cantwell, author of The Running Kind, to discuss country legend Merle Haggard and how he never lived down Okie from Muskogee. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com Bing Crosby, A Pocketful of Dreams, is available from Back Bay Books. Please support the show by ordering it via the link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.